All right, welcome back. And uh, we are still here talking to Kevin and Cindy. About grief. Just as a reminder, some of these stories may trigger you in different ways because we talk about grief, we talk about suicide, and nursing in general can be hard. So Yeah, especially yeah. the last uh, 18 months. But we have a therapist here, and she's great. Yeah. Remember, Cindy? If you didn't, listen to the last episode, and then come back to this one. So let's uh, continue in those stories. I'll never forget going on holidays for the first time as a new nurse. I was taking two weeks off. At the time, I was so excited because my husband and I had been living long distance and we were finally able to get to spend some solid time together and celebrate our first anniversary. Before my holidays started, I worked my usual three-day stretch. I've been looking after a wonderful woman who was palliative. I had spent lots of time with her and her family over the course of those three shifts. While I was rounding for the final time and saying my goodbyes to patients, it dawned on me that I wouldn't be in for two weeks, and there was a very good chance my palliative lady would be dead before I came back. It absolutely crushed me. I went from riding the high of going on holidays to absolutely grief-stricken over a lady I barely knew. I came home that night, and I was in a total funk. It was so hard to explain to my husband It definitely put a damper on the start of my holidays. As a nurse, we really don't talk about how much of ourselves we give to our patients and how that impacts our relationships at home. As a new nurse, this was something I was totally unprepared to navigate and it caught me completely off guard. Wow. Having to go all in. Yeah, I feel that right there is probably the more relatable story that, you know, with the multiple conversations that I had with my brother of his ICU experience, um, I think he had a story very similar um, to this person that wrote in. And uh, I mean, just on that level, um, knowing that you're gone for X amount of days or weeks and you can't shake the fact that this person that you barely know you know, is sitting there and you've made this weird random connection, but also a very unique connection. And that's, that's all you can think about. I mean, the story he told me that man passed away and I remember him going back to, to work and, you know, just seeing that room empty. And that's when it kind of set in. You can't shield yourself enough to not take it home. I mean, maybe <laughs> no. <laughs> I heard a couple people wonder if they, uh, were psychopaths because they were able to leave work and you know without breaking down and weeping but i think we all do have those patients that uh i you know it, they're ghosts they, they really are they follow you around and <laughs> it's not always like an unpleasant thought or anything but i god i, I hate when I leave work and I know I'm not back for two weeks and I know there's someone that they're on the cusp, they're on the knife's edge and they're going to go one way or the other. And you do have to kind of reel it in. No, I mean, that's like the, the beauty of nursing and also the curse, right? Is that um, you, you do not with everyone, but you do form these like amazing connections sometimes with people and who knows what that's, about entirely but what you know is that you really feel for them and then you feel their loss 
Um, and of course you have to go on vacation, <laughs> you know, <laughs> of, of, of course that's important. And that doesn't make you a, you know, a bad person. I mean, it just sounds like a really beautiful connection and I'm of the mindset that we're here to connect with one another. So that sounds like a good thing and a loss for this nurse that they weren't able to be there. They, if they hadn't had a vacation plan, they might've wanted to be there, you know, when this patient was passing. And so for sure that's hard. I work nights on an acute medical floor that has two hospice-slash-palliative care rooms that are more homey and don't look like hospital rooms. Monday night was my first night off orientation, and I was signed to both hospice beds, where I had taken care of patients at end of life before. They were typically comfortable, fortunately, being on a PCA pump for a day or two already. One of my hospice patients on Monday appeared pretty comfortable at the start of my shift until 2 a.m., his breathing became very labored, respiratory rate was in the 40s, and he was gasping for breath no matter how much PRN dilated and Ativan I gave him. I was in the room every 15 to 20 minutes giving PRNs with no effect, until 5 a.m. when finally I got the nocturnalist to increase his dilated PCA basal rate. When I entered the room with the PCA key, his sister said the patient had stopped breathing. I watched him take two agonal breaths and then he was gone. I tried to support the sister and the daughter as best I could while admittedly being somewhat shaken up myself, as this was my first patient death. My coworkers were very helpful in guiding me on the next steps, calling the organ bank, how to document, etc. But I realized that no one asked me how I was handling it personally. I can't help but feel a little down that the patient was so uncomfortable for so long, even though I did the best that I could, and I didn't feel reassured by my coworkers. One even joked that the patient died faster because of the amount of Dilaudid I gave, which was well within the ordered parameters. I feel okay about it now, after talking about it with some of my friends, and I know that it wasn't the worst first patient death experience that I could have had. But maybe my experience can serve as a reminder to check on your newer nurse colleagues when they experience a patient death. I didn't start off in ICU, I started off in stroke telly. And I remember while I was on orientation in ICU, I'd never had a hospice patient or a, our hospital, we called it a low natural death um, code status. And I remember my first one in ICU where they were on a morphine drip and my, I was still on orientation. I was with my preceptor and we were literally yelling at each other in the hallway of the unit. Um, She's like, she's breathing 28 times a minute. You need to go in there, increase her drip rate, and bolus her more drugs. And I was like, I'm not fucking euthanizing anyone. And she's like, she's in fucking pain. And we were like just going off, and we both had to walk off. Like, I didn't understand death with dignity. You know, it was something I had to learn later, and me and my preceptor became work spouses so i mean it, it was fun <laughs> um it's something they don't you don't get taught and uh i just want to hit those co-workers that were like oh you know they died faster because you gave more drugs like, <laughs> fucking go like, make not helpful. <laughs> such a weird thing i'd be a lobbyist for physician assistance it's like no cut that out but um <laughs> i'm like you just let people die comfortably like if i'm in that situation yeah. shoot me up with phenobarbital and Dilated. like please like i don't mm. want to know any of it yeah it's such a gray area but it makes so much sense yeah mm -hmm. and i love that this 
nurse was so like was advocating for seasoned nurses to remember what that first death is like and to just check in, you know, with any new nurse, whether it's their first death or not, just to recognize it. Death is traumatic to the psyche. The idea of death, you know, is abhorrent to the psyche. And so initially, one of my favorite uh, writers, Irvin Yalom, says the, the reality of death kills us, but the idea of death saves us, which I love. Like we can live more full lives, you know, if we're, if we're paying attention, um, which I think intuitively makes sense. But it's, it's, I think, easy to forget when you're seasoned how, like, shocking that even the visual can be. And you can hear the nurse was worried about, you know, did I do it right? You know, it's a lot to hold. So to just be compassionate to our fellow nurses, that sounds wise. Yeah. Hi, Nurse Life family. I came to share about my story of personal grief and how it affected my work. In May of 2019, I was working in a CVICU that was already short-staffed, crazy busy, and had crazy sick patients. I'd been a nurse for a little over a year at this point. I mostly enjoyed work, and I really loved the people I worked with. But it was still stressful being a newbie in a high-stakes environment. One weekend, my world changed forever. My dad had gone missing overnight, unbeknownst to my family until morning. He had taken his own life. It took several hours for cops to track him down and link him to the John Doe found a county over. None of us knew how deeply he was struggling inside. Hindsight is 2020, and we realized after the fact that he was showing some signs of depression. But my mom said anytime she had asked him about it, he denied anything, being wrong, and said he didn't need help. I so, so wish I could have known how heavy his heart was before it came to this. The death of my dad completely rocked my world. Luckily, my work family was very supportive, reaching out, bringing gift baskets of self-care goodies to my house when I returned from work. Taking care of my patients when I needed to cry in the break room, giving me hugs and encouraging me to leave early during my shifts when my mental health was suffering big time. I also utilized my job's EAP, which is a employee assistance program, for uh, free therapy during this time. Trudging through my own grief while working in an ICU where other people's loved ones were frequently dying didn't help my own grief process. Eventually, I left my position for a smaller hospital's ICU that had a lot lower acuity patients. The few I did see pass away were more frequently elderly and passed under the circumstances of palliative comfort care. Something about dying with dignity was a little less traumatic to me than coding someone for an hour with family members welling out in the hallway. When COVID hit and our patients weren't allowed visitors and were frequently dying, I ensured I was there to hold my hands when they passed. Tears would stream down my face as I knew I was the last person they would interact with before passing on. I just started therapy again after a couple of year hiatus. During my first session, my therapist actually cried about hearing the stories of patients that had stuck with me throughout this pandemic. I still don't know if I've fully worked out my grief of losing my dad, and now I have a whole new form of grief and probably some PTSD from patients that I've lost. I'm hopeful going to therapy now will help quell some of my raging anxiety, but I know some amount of grief will always exist. There'll be days that a memory of your lost loved one will make you laugh, and the very next day, that same memory will make you cry. It's a wild roller coaster. I guess my takeaway of grief is that it sucks. 
but it's easier with support and therapy is a lifesaver. I've also found talking about my own mental health struggles as encourage others to reach out and share your own stories of your personal struggles. Please don't be afraid to reach out for help. It's the hardest part, but once you're receiving help with whatever you're going through, you'd be glad you took that first step. And always remember, you aren't weak for needing help. You're strong for realizing you need help and reaching out for it. That's a good one. Goddamn right. Very good one. Yeah. Amen to that. <laughs> you have it. It doesn't have you. So <laughs> just remember that. <laughs> a lot to unpack. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Cindy. Oh, just there's so much good stuff in there. And I mean, one of the things I just know is that so many of your listeners have done what this person did and held the hands of dying patients with no family members around during COVID. And I, I feel like the whole world owes you all uh, such a debt of gratitude. Um, you weren't trained to be, you know, chaplains and grief therapists and um, family members for, you know, person after person who was dying. And I know not all of your listeners have had that experience, but many of them have. So just a huge thank you. And also just a recognition that whatever help or support you might need from your community is owed to you uh, because of, of that huge sacrifice. Um, it takes a huge toll. But there was such good stuff. There's so much good that I almost yeah. don't need to say anything. Yeah. You know, there's just such good that this is a person who's done grief therapy. You can hear it in the, their language, you know. Yeah. I, one thing that I really appreciated about this person's story is that they loved working at the high acuity um, ICU. But when they knew they recognized that it was too much for them and they left um that position and went and worked at a lower acuity ICU. And so that was really advocating for their own mental health. And, um, you know, they still experienced grief, but like she said, it was able to like, it was less traumatic. So I think that's a really like noble thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And they addressed that asking for help is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. God, there's just such, there's a lot of great choices that they were making and encouraging others to make. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. I feel like, a lot of people get stuck in those moments of grief or depression and just that very first one step that you need to take to reach out and talk to a therapist or a grief counselor can be the hardest, especially when, you know, it's someone that a friend you're trying to get to do something like this. I mean, would you have any kind of uh, tips or ways you can nudge people into this direction? I mean, definitely the writer mentioned talking about it with coworkers and how that kind of creates a culture where you can do that. Honestly, I, I do have a concern right now. And that is that I don't have any colleagues that have space in their roster for a new client. And it really worries me for people. And so I, I would want to say to people, if you make the decision to get in and get help and you're calling therapist after therapist and, and nobody's got room, try to be patient and keep calling, ask them if they've got a waiting list ask around to your colleagues and see if there's, if they know anybody who's taking patients, but it's going to take a little while in this season. And my concern is we've got a whole bunch of folks who've been waiting and all of a sudden they're going to be ready. Maybe even some of your listeners today. And so I just want to encourage folks to keep trying. The room is going to come um, as things ease up. It's just, I think most therapists, I haven't taken a new client in two years and most therapists is because so many of my past clients who completed their therapy and were out there living healthy lives, but COVID 
for many of them, especially those in the medical community, just brought increased need. And so they're back in, which makes it harder to get in new folks. Yeah. Yeah. You can talk to friends, you can talk to colleagues, but there's no substitution for professional help. That's right. Um, before I went to therapy, I spent 24 years with a mask on, basically smiling. Mm-hmm. I do want to tell people is like, there is definite benefits to sticking it out and finding that professional and just getting the actual, the true therapy. Yep. It's amazing having friends and colleagues who will listen, but um, yeah, there's no, there's no <laughs> replacement for uh, true therapy. And look into telehealth. Um, yep. It is now covered yep. by almost every national PPO. That's right. Um, and there is mental health is now covered on there as well. Uh, use that as a traveler. You know, I don't have a regular doctor anymore, so I use it all. That's it right there. And telehealth is, is going to make it possible for folks to get in. The only thing I would add is just find a therapist that you like Mm -hmm. and you feel like they like you. That's probably of all the different modalities. Yes. Find somebody with, with a trauma specialist and, uh, see a grief specialist, all that. But in the end, the only thing that's been proven <laughs> to correlate with with um, increased mental health and, and success in therapy is that that you feel liked and loved by your therapist. So uh, keep looking until you, if that doesn't happen, <laughs> yeah. you might not be with the right person. Mm-hmm. Keep looking. <laughs> I am a surgical trauma ICU nurse and I lost my dad this past May. I was terrified to go back to work. I thought that I was going to have to file for FMLA and take an extended period of time off. Thankfully, I had a week allowed for bereavement and it took two weeks of PTO after that. I was surprised that I actually wanted to go back to work after that. I have been coping with the grief of the loss of my father every day since he died. I thought that would be an emotional wreck at work after he passed away, but I actually found it super helpful to go back to work and to use my logical nurse brain. Every now and then, something reminded me of the time I spent with him in hospice during his last days, and it made me feel very emotional and sad. Hearing people's last words they said to their loved ones, and very randomly seeing a patient's swollen arms that looked just like my dad's when he was dying. However, I believe that overall, the loss of my father has made me a much better nurse. I know what the families are feeling who are saying their goodbye to their loved ones, and I didn't fully grasp that before. Now, when families make a decision to keep their family member alive, even when it isn't feasible and that patient isn't going to make a meaningful recovery, I understand. I may not agree with it, but I get it. I knew my father wasn't going to make a meaningful recovery, but I was able to put on my nurse hat and make a decision to put him on hospice, but it was still much harder than I had imagined. For me, grief in nursing has been a personal journey of therapy, sadness, loving myself, and having a different kind of compassion for my patients and their families that I didn't have before. Hey, like coming back to stick you, I give them applause all the time. It's nothing against the patients themselves, but I do not like surgical trauma. It's not my forte and, you know, hats off to them, which I'm sure they appreciate because they love themselves. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we can we can edit all this. <laughs> uh, um, coming from a trauma and going back to a trauma, and then in the end, looking forward to it, I think it just shows the amount of growth within this story, going from the death into I don't know if I'll ever be able to work again. To 
that new light, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. I, I, I don't know, Cindy, I, I feel like there are a lot of stages gone through in the story. For sure. Yeah, you can hear it. And, and it also feels like that this person is kind of works through that whole myth of closure that we ever, especially with the death of a parent or God forbid the death of a child or a spouse, that there's going to be some kind of closure that you're going to reach and know that then it's time to go. But it's like, you're going to miss that person as long as you're alive. Right. And so it, of course you ask the question, when is it the right time to go back? But you, you can hear them cycling through the stages over and over again, including some trauma in there about kind of having a, a reaction to seeing an arm that looked very similar or hearing sounds that were similar in terms of family members saying goodbye yeah yeah these echoes are coming yeah, back yeah, yeah that's it that's exactly i love that yeah that's it right there is mm -hmm. just the echoes what feels hopeful about this one is that like all therapy ultimately is grief therapy because we're trying to figure out what we've lost in our life whether it's our childhood or something that's going on now and how to process it the great thing about healthy grief is it inoculates us against a bunch of stuff like addiction and mm -hmm. further trauma and depression and all kinds of things and so it is hard to go through but the simple turning your mind in the moment to um just choosing in a moment to turn your mind to just for a moment, the sadness that you feel about your loved one and allows you to go back to, you know, whatever is next, you know, for you to go to. And it's that repetitive. That's why it's so important to not look at grief as, as linear in any way, and certainly not the stages as linear in any way. Th to recognize you're just going to keep you spiral deeper, but it also makes us deeper people mm -hmm. and more capable of love. You know, the, there's a Persian mystic, Khalil Gibran, who said, you know, the deeper that your sorrow carves you the more joy you can hold and mm. that really is true i've seen that over and over again with people you just know the people who grieve well because they're the ones that love the most and so i love this story because it's a hopeful story even though there's a lot of hurt and she turns it back to the patients and like i know really understanding the family members where they're coming from because that's a hard position to be in. we've all heard nurses that are like why don't they just let their patient go like you know like there's less yeah. compassion towards certain family members who are keeping a patient that we know is not a feasible, like they're not going to make a meaningful recovery. I love that. And so she's like having more understanding and compassion towards them because even as a nurse, she saw it, how hard it was to see that. Yeah, that was awesome. Okay, next story. I've been a nurse for 10 years and I've worked in oncology and critical care, so I've seen a lot of death. I've also experienced significant traumatic losses in my personal life as a child and teenager. I think without having experiences of those losses, I wouldn't be able to process the grief that comes with our job at all, and I don't know how my co-workers do it. However, I think the thing that has impacted me the most in the last 19 months is when I know nothing about my patients. I'm alone in your room holding your hands while they pass if we're in a phase where family can't be there, and in an absolute mess. Maybe it's selfish of me to think I deserve to know anything about our patients but I find it's just easier for me to process when I do. If family is allowed at bedside, I always encourage them to have some music on in the room if they need something to cut the silence or the patient's favorite music. Months later, I can hear a specific song and it takes me right back to the patient. I think that's okay. After a significant loss at work, I make it a priority to go into nature, move my body intentionally, and try not to drown out my sorrows in one way or another. 
It's okay to feel your emotions and to allow yourself to acknowledge that you're sad or mad or confused. It's a process and even after a decade of nursing, I'm still trying to navigate it. Dang, that's another one that there's so much good stuff in there. It's mm -hmm. like, what do, you, what do you pick out? Yeah, great coping mechanisms for sure. The nature piece is huge. I, I really love that they mentioned that. You know, I was talking earlier about the fact that our brains are made for co-regulation. I think you can co-regulate with nature also. Um, you can co-regulate with your dog or your horse or your cat, you know. And so I love that piece. And I think it's one of the few things we've been able to do during COVID is go outside. So I really like that. The other thing that came up, something about what they said made me think about the fact that if you ever have a reaction with a patient or at work or in any life situation that feels incongruent with what's in front of you, what you can trust is that it is 100% congruent with something in your story. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and so rather than, God, what's wrong with me? Why am I having this intense? It's like, trust it. Trust it. I mean, your body is going to tell you that you're grieving far sooner than your brain is. So if you can make that switch where you just trust, okay, something's going on and I'm not going to do it. I'm going to put it on the shelf for the rest of my shift. But at some point today, I need to, I need to talk to somebody or I need to go for a walk and I need to process what it is. What is it that's going on with me? And just turning your attention to it will probably bring up, um, of course, therapy is a great place to do that too. But there are any more when we work with grief and trauma, we always work with the body because it's that's where it shows up first, mm. long before the brain. Well, I mean, 75% of our neurons are in our gut, for example. So the reality is you're, when we say something, you know something in your gut, it's, it's, that is your brain. <laughs> Got that microbiome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember, you know, we had a bad COVID back at work, you know, I, I was charged that night and I went up and checked with the nurse. I was like, Hey, are you okay? She's like, you know, I don't think so. And that's a culture change that needs to happen. Yeah. You know, like you were saying, it's like, she immediately recognized, I was like, well, you need, I'm like, I got your patients, like go take them. Awesome. I was like, you have to come back tonight but you need to go take a moment right now <laughs> like i can't let you go home you can have a few minutes uh, gotta recognize mm -hmm. it and be okay with recognizing it and know it's okay to be in grief mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah Naturally. yeah not only okay but it's the ideal right you know i think sometimes as nurses and I've listened to enough of your podcast now in these last couple of days to know that there's there's an awareness with your listeners about, <laughs> you know, how we can be judgmental as nurses about pain and see it as a strength when people don't show their pain and all don't need a lot of pain medication. Do the same thing with emotional pain, obviously. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so to, to look at that as a strength. Yeah. yeah. That's so easy to do that. This next story is pretty interesting. It says, my grandfather served as a Navy doctor in the South Pacific during World War II. His experience of seeing death after death while hardly being able to save anyone reminds me of what so many COVID nurses have experienced. My grandfather went on to have a very successful cardiology practice. He was well respected by his colleagues and even headed up the state's division of the American Heart Association. But his life was plagued by depression and PTSD, undiagnosed because it wasn't a thing back then. I'm told that anytime he lost a patient, which was pretty often in cardiology, it risks setting off a major depressive episode. He would spend weeks in his room at home. Family and amazingly close colleagues would cover for him. 
He was treated intermittently at an inpatient clinic, trying a variety of new methods, electroconvulsion therapy, Thorazine, and talk therapy. He found mild success in those therapies, but always relapsed after a handful of months. In the end, he, the cardiologist, passed away due to a heart attack when my dad was still a kid. He never found a successful long-term treatment, and he always had to keep his pain hidden. I worry about the trauma so many nurses have experienced from seeing so much unnecessary death in this last year and a half. It's going to affect people for the rest of their lives, and it's a weird kind of grief. We are there so intimately, and we are so deeply involved, yet it's not our loved one. It's a challenging process. Fortunately, the stigma of mental health issues is not as bad as it was in the 50s and 60s, but the general public is still so shielded from the realities of working healthcare and the impact that it leaves on us. I avoided adult care partially because of my own experience with grief. My mom died of cancer when I was 11. Adult care is just crushingly dark to me, and it reminds me too much of the inevitability of death. Peds, while terribly sad sometimes, always have felt like there's a little more hope to me. Of course, there's nothing hopeful about a care conference discussing how long a pediatric patient has left. However, for the most part, kids get better. It's isolated me from some of the grief that comes with this line of work. Still, when I'm faced with it, I do my best to acknowledge the honor it is to care for others in their last moments. I don't know if I've ever thought about it as an honor, but that makes sense. That's Mm -hmm. really deep deep (laughs) thought. Yeah, it is. I really like what they said about about we're going to be dealing with this for the rest of our lives, like feeling the impact of it. Yeah. For the rest of our lives, of, of working during COVID, the toll that that's taken on people. Because I think there's so much respect given to veterans and people who have experienced combat and um, mm-hmm. the PTSD and the things that they suffered um, has become a high priority, I feel like, in the mental health and even from the general public understanding of that. And it hasn't quite shifted to nurses and people need to like recognize like this is the same thing that nurses are experiencing and we're not giving them the same credit or respect Mm -hmm. that we give to veterans and in combat before. And it's the same thing. It's exactly this. I think it's the best metaphor that there is um, for what nurses are doing right now is uh, like a, like a field medic, like somebody Mm -hmm. that is literally taking active fire while they're trying to treat people. I, I really, that is, that's the best metaphor I can come up with. So you're absolutely yeah. right. She she told me that a few weeks ago and yeah, it makes almost too much sense. Then to add, you know, the political denial. and social denial <laughs> that is, you know, directly going against the work that nurses are doing and yeah. healthcare workers are doing against. So the I feel pandemic. like they're, they're experiencing this trauma and then they're also being denied the reality of the trauma that they're facing. Yeah. That's right. Them. It's, it's a major yeah, gaslight exactly. from society. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely right. It's the trauma of COVID. It's also a political storm mm-hmm. and a storm around race in this country. And those things have a huge toll on people, of course, based on their own personal stories. But think about, I mean, we only have so much of the capacity to hold. And we are legitimately being asked to hold more than we can. More than is humanly possible. Um, A lot of nurses have written to me and talked to me on their Instagram about how isolated they've felt because of the polarizing stuff within the politics of everything. So even though this is like a healthcare issue, but people are really like not being supported by their families or feel like, you know, they've tried to explain to their family members and then they're just on the opposite side of political. And then it just it just divides them and isolates 
And um, and then even nurses have said, like, even some nurses that choose to believe certain ways about the vaccine or whatever. So it's really mm-hmm. hard for a lot mm-hmm. of nurses. Like, it's so divisive and isolating. Yeah. I mean, even when your, your local politics are clearly putting in guidelines that kind of reverse yeah. <laughs> the work that vaccines and you know, things like that would uh, would help. Absolutely. We always heal best when there's a neuroception of safety. And one of the takeaways from this last year and a half, unfortunately, has been like, we don't feel safe with one another. And that's extremely difficult then to create an environment where we can heal Mm -hmm. and connect. There was a term I learned during the pandemic was uh, moral injury. And I encourage any of our listeners to look into it, but um, it's a major contributor to PTSD and the very dumb down version as i understand it is that it is a level of futility or doing what you think is right and everything you're fucking doing is not doing anything right and while you are being told to do this that this is the correct way to do it you're being dismissed or you know it's like in in war you're being told these are the people you need to kill you see with the vietnam vets where and then they come home and everybody's like you know fuck you you know this war was wrong blah 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 it's like i'm just following orders and they're like nah fuck that and then you extrapolate that to this current situation and it becomes so multifaceted and it's just a I don't know, like a prisma of it, like just it's exponential um, in this situation. A lot of us are experiencing that. For sure. That's a really good point. Just a quick look up as can be defined as a profound change in or betrayal of one's sense of right or wrong. So I guess in a sense where you would believe your leaders or people in charge would, you know, have in mind to do the right thing. They kind of go against that and uh, take down public health policies, I should say, and um, make your life a little bit harder. Or even people are experiencing it within their own family. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Last story. I joined the new grad nurse club at the beginning of 2021. Six months later, I joined the dead dad club. My relatively healthy, active dad suddenly died in his bed at home. In the morning, my brother found him and called the paramedics. By the time I got there, he had already been declared dead and I wailed over his body. It was the most heartbreaking loss I ever endured. I'm still coming to terms with it. After two weeks, I had to get back to work. As a new grad, I don't have much PTO to crude and I still need a paycheck. My dad was a realist and a hard worker, so honoring him by getting back to work felt right. I also have major depression, so it felt that if I didn't get back to work sooner rather than later, that might turn into never, and my depression would swallow me whole. As a baby nurse, I'm still barely getting my sea legs at my med surge day shift job. Return to work felt like I had regressed in my skills. At first, I had days where I felt useless. I'd cry on my way in and out of the building. At the scene of my dad's death where blood glucose test strips were strewn around him on the ground from EMS, suddenly doing a glucose test at work became a trigger for me. I wondered if I went back to work too soon. Another factor I didn't expect to struggle with was the lack of community that I felt. Grief has been the heaviest weight to carry while doing a job that's already mentally and physically tasking. Since I'm a new staff, not many coworkers knew me personally or are aware I lost my dad. 
The lack of acknowledgement on the floor made me feel isolated. I didn't think it would matter much, but I appreciated it so much when a coworker would give me your condolences. Even though quick, I'm sorry for your loss, helped me feel seen and helped that massive weight of grief I was carrying feel real. I know everyone grieves differently and the bedside is unique in that we have to leave our shit at the door and care for our patients. But those tiny moments of support in the hallway, in the break room, at change of our shift meant so much. Little by little, shift by shift, I've been gathering my bearings and feeling like a competent RN again. As much as any baby nurse in your first year at bedside can. As I get less task-oriented and understand treating disease processes better, I'm also finding connections between my grief and my nursing practice. I won't lie, you're not all good connections. Grief accelerates burnout. I don't even have a year under my belt, and some days when I'm really exhausted, it feels too early to be tired for this job already. However, the gravity of losing someone as in love with life as my dad was has also dipped in my gratitude and compassion. A major plus side is that I'm more patient with concerned and overbearing family members at work. I understand your fear of losing someone they love, manifesting them by calling for an update at 0730 or whatever bullshit they're on at bedside. Because I lost one of mine, I would fight like hell if it meant one more day with my dad. More often than before, I feel genuinely happy for my patients that have family members that care about them. I have moments that trigger difficult memories or emotions. Sometimes seeing a daughter care for a sick dad gets me. Sometimes I cry in my car after work wishing I could stop by and see him again. There's no pretty bow for this. I just appreciate a space to talk about grief as a nurse. I guess that's what I'll end with. There is not enough room for grief and reality of death in our lives right now. We don't talk about it. People are so afraid of it. I sense it when I talk to non-healthcare workers especially. When I uttered the phase, my dad died, and they give me a pathetic wince of official expressions like I'm a wounded animal. I've started recognizing that wince. Maybe it's because I don't usually sugarcoat the euphemisms like passed away. But if I'm talking to someone and I bring up my dad's death, they give me the wince. Then I try to change the subject quickly. I know it's a way of trying to convey care. It's just distracting and, for me, a signal that they're not comfortable with the subject. I wish people could talk more about that than matter of factly. Death and grief are much part of life as birth and joy. That's it right there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so cultural the way we deal with death stateside or just Western culture, I think in general. For sure. You look at the cultures around the world where whether cremation and mass grieving as a family is the standard in public and then you know you, you go as a group of 50 people down to the ganges and dump the ashes in or you know you bring your dead relatives out for tea and a dance yeah. you know once a year uh legitimately out of a coffin and <laughs> dress them up and it's so culturally different everywhere and mm-hmm. uh, it is a kind of a culture of silence here, yeah. you know, like, you know, you nod and move on. But, uh, <laughs> We're so shielded and separated. Your body. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. This writer definitely, I feel pointed that out. And the fact that, yeah. you know, she had to go back to work so fast that she wasn't even sure if she was ready to go. in. I feel like that is a big part of 
our American way, capitalistic way, Western way of, of kind of doing stuff. For sure. I mean, grieving definitely can't be done in two weeks and you're ready to <laughs> get back to your regular life. <laughs> no. It was meaningful when someone did acknowledge the loss that she had because no. she was feeling that, carrying that weight. And when it isn't acknowledged by somebody else, then it just feels like invisible or like you kind of, I guess, would feel like I shouldn't be feeling this way that I am. And so... Because of society, like not talking about death, being so shielded from death. Nurses, we are surrounded by more death than the general public. But at the same time, so we like we have like our nurse role in that. But then when it's like a coworker coming in, it goes back to being the society. And so it's like, I feel uncomfortable talking to you about death um, in some cases. Mm-hmm. And so I think for her, because she didn't know them that well, she's new. So everyone's uncomfortable and don't know how to navigate talking about her father's death with her and that left her feeling isolated. Then she's there for 12 hours minimum. Probably, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. let's be real, 13, 14 hours at the <laughs> hospital going home. Exactly. She's probably three in a row. You know, she is mm-hmm. isolated. Yeah. 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 I would say her point is so true that grief and death are um, as much a part of life as birth and joy. Yeah, that was awesome. That was awesome. Yeah, it's it always shocks me that I still hear people say all the time, well, I, I didn't want to ask him because I didn't want to make him feel bad, you know, mm-hmm. um, in terms of asking the grieving person how they're doing or, or mentioning the death. And, and the opposite is true. Even if you ask the person and they cry, they probably needed to yeah. shed a tear, you know, like it's you haven't harmed them it's not like you their grief was completely unknown right. to them and all of a sudden you you know you ruined their day we're you know, shocked it's, like it's what happened <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. who died oh jeez yeah. but yeah. yeah 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 i mean that that has definitely be that's that's been an eye-opening experience for me because uh my brother passing was absolutely the closest person to me that uh, passed and um, the fact that he had this platform, and uh, I remember it was days after I was walking Oscar and having a neighbor that lived, you know, a few doors down that, you know, I'd never met before, even though we'd lived there for months and months and months, run outside and scream my name like someone that, you know, that has known me in the past. Um, and we had that connection right there. Um, she wasn't afraid to you know, give her condolences, hugged me, and I cried right there to a complete stranger that I'd never met. And, um, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's that connection actually does make a massive difference compared to trying to tiptoe around the subject of something that is inevitable in life. Mm-hmm. And I think for this whole community, too, it's been kind of difficult because a lot of people feel unsure of how to grieve someone that they haven't met, but that was so meaningful for them or to them. Yeah. And then, like you said, the connection is such a big part of it. And so you don't always know which of your other nurse friends knew about EB or um, so you kind you feel isolated in that as well. And so we wanted to do this so we can like give validation mm-hmm. like th- this is a, a real death that everyone experienced and mm-hmm. at different levels, but everyone experienced yeah. it. And um, we had a couple of stories people writ- wrote into us just about their grief with EB I have many friends that are nurses, and I'm actually a radiology technologist, but I enjoyed EB stories and looked forward to them at the end of my work days. There was always something new to learn about or laugh about, and the community he created was a nice and warm place for me and everyone to share their stories. 
To honor Evie, I have a screenshot of an L.A. sunset that he took a while back on his stories. It's set as my phone background now and is a nice daily reminder to see life from Evie's point of view and not to overthink too much. To channel Evie's vibes and just to know that the sun will always rise again the next day and nothing is ever really that serious. He reminds me to be grateful in the little things and most mornings when I see a pretty sunrise, I think of Evie and miss him dearly. Passing on or dying is not the final phase. Mm -hmm. His memory will live on for years and years and decades and decades mm -hmm. um, after this. So it's uh, it's something that I feel people do need to come to terms with. And uh, and uh, I don't know the exact terminology I'm looking for this, but it, uh, in a mental, physical way, it's this is not the last form that we're going to take. We will live on in people's memories. We will mm -hmm. impact mm -hmm. beyond this time that we live in. Um, and I think that's a way that I've, I've viewed these, these last few months is just the fact that my brother will live on through thousands of people mm -hmm. that he's reached. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. The next one. I've followed EB for what seems like forever. I've always looked forward to his stories and reading about what others in this crazy profession are experiencing. From spilling tea to mangoes to Oscar to difficult topics like race and power, I enjoyed learning about myself and humanity. I was so hopeful for EB's treatment and thought for sure he'd beat his cancer. When I heard that he passed, I was devastated, which is weird because I never actually known him. It's so weird to try and explain to people why I was sad because it felt weird to mourn someone I had never met. But like many others, I've spilled my soul to E.B. many things that I've never told anyone else. He was a safe place, listening ear, and dare I say a friend. I still can't help but feel a twinge of sadness when I think of him and Oscar. I hope he's at peace and that his family knows how much he meant to so many people. And we definitely do because uh, my mom is still getting cards. I actually delivered the last few mm. when I was home last week. And she says, thank mm. you to all of you. It's so touching that, that um, he had such an impact. And I mean, we're talking about grieving in community today. And that's what you guys have created. Yeah. Uh, and what he created in this space is a place for people to be known and um it, i mean it's really beautiful just literally learning about it on tuesday when emily um <laughs> contacted me it's like this is an amazing community and so of course listeners are grieving his loss as someone that they knew because we we grieve because we love and he he was just he was just such an immense presence and just listening to four or five podcasts it's like what an amazing <laughs> human being no wonder people feel so bereft and such a sense of loss. So hopefully there can be a, a permission <laughs> to grieve freely um, because, because this community has meant so much in a profession that can feel very isolating alone. You nailed it, Cindy, because I, at least for me, like uh, there's two people outside my family I've ever shed tears on after finding out about their death. And it was, Evie, like out of the blue. I mean, it was shocking. Like I, I can remember, uh, found out reading snarky nurses comment and like just fucking like fell out. I didn't even know he had had leukemia. You know, I was way in the dark about it, but I mean, he was like 
following them in nursing school. You know, I mean, it was like, it was crazy. And then um, the only other person that happened with was Anthony Bourdain. And I, mm. you know, when I put them two together, I'm yeah. like, what is about <laughs> these guys that made this happen? I'm like, fucking <laughs> awesome, good yeah. humans. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, because they're yeah. just, they're so raw and so human to us. And I think that, you know, allow yourself to grieve. Yeah, it might feel weird, but you know, there, there's a reason their spirits running through yeah. you. You know, I mean, he would have loved that comparison too. Yeah, I was like, he has, yeah. he loves yeah, he, he has that. books. Yeah. He has a book of them. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's cool. Was he a foodie? He was. Yeah. Is his page? His, his personal page is yeah. EB Eats, yeah. and he was wanting it to be about food, and then it became about like relationships and sex and everything yeah. else in the world. Giving advice to all his EB babies awesome. and followers. It was very yeah. different. Yeah, a lot of people That's have awesome. deemed themselves EB babies. Yeah. So, oh, I love that. And what I heard something, and I didn't know what it meant. What does "gather the plants" mean? Oh, gather the plants. Um. So. A while ago, he started talking about Sundays are for the plants, and it was like a reminder to water your plants. But then it was also a self-care message, like, you are the plant, so make sure you take care of yourself. And so um, that was a message that he really, really set forward. So all of his remembrance merch on our, like, the sweatshirts and stuff that we made, they say you are the plant. So everybody is... They called him Plant Poppy. (laughs) He has a lot of nicknames. (laughs) That is the best. I'm glad that you picked up on that. That makes me happy. (laughs) Work very hard to to get that out there. Um, Well, do you want to read another one? Or I was going to say, we can also talk about other coping mechanisms that you would recommend, whether that's medication. Like, how do you grieve properly? I don't know. Oh man, we have one suggestion, but we will like to yeah, get well, your take on it. But let's let let's, let's let you guys go, and we have a little bit of research. Yeah. Want to hear what you got? Okay, all right, very good, very good. How to grieve? And you mentioned medication, so we should we could touch on that for sure. I think there's often some confusion about um, whether it's okay to take antidepressants or or um, anti anxiety medication. You know, when you're grieving. And uh, it absolutely is. Of course it is. Um, you need to take care of yourself. And especially for those who have um, a, a history of depression or anxiety, those symptoms are going to uptick. Depression itself is a stage of grief. Um, so what, what I often work with clients around is um, kind of thinking holistically about your needs during a time of grief and recognizing that there's some vulnerability like kevin you were mentioning cultures that grieve well um and that allow open space um, for people to grieve you know um and by the way most of those cultures people live longer than they do you know in in (laughs) and have less heart disease and autoimmune disorders and all that not that that's always the direct correlation but i think we do ourselves sometimes a disservice so um, what I have, what I've heard uh, from, I led grief groups for years. And one of the things I heard from a number of clients was, you know, my, my father died or my mother died or my sibling died and my doctor put me on an antidepressant and that was 10 years ago. And I just came off of them and I realized I never grieved their loss. So I'm starting now, I'm starting to grieve now. Um, so what I would say is absolutely if you're depressed, um, 
it, it is just like if you are diabetic, you need insulin. You know, your brain is in need of those neurochemicals. It's perfectly fine um, to take antidepressants, but recognize that that's not, that is akin to, um, this isn't a perfect analogy, but in the same way that we take pain medicine, you know, for a broken bone, um, that's what we're doing when we're, we're medicating the, the emotional pain of depression. And at some point you want to reset the bone if it's not set right, right? So if there's trauma involved in your loss in any way, meaning you're experiencing any symptoms of PTSD, flashbacks or um, nightmares or a sense of overall the world doesn't feel uh, worth living, those kinds of symptoms, you need to treat the trauma first because it tends to block healthy grief. So make sure you get in and treat trauma. Um, and then grieving itself is healing. The grieving is the, it's the doorway to healing and also to consciousness and a lot of other good things. So create space in terms of the healthiest way to grieve, Emily, I think creating space every day when you're in a season of loss to grieve. Um, and I can, um, I can shoot you a couple of references that are like just a, just like a brief, yeah grief reading every day i can um if you want to put them in the link um yeah that'd be great uh, for this episode that's helpful i do some grief reading every day because i work as a therapist i have my own stories of grief obviously the last year and a half has impacted me personally pretty profoundly as well so i do some kind of grief reading poetry something every morning and i write every morning and I think just a daily practice of just acknowledging that there are losses. Grief isn't just about someone dying. Grief is about any loss that you've experienced. So getting good and familiar with sort of the language of loss and grief is what ultimately helps it not build up. And then the things that your readers were talking about, moving your body is really important. Getting some kind of exercise is important if you're able to, and obviously depression interferes with the ability to do that. Getting out in nature is so important and art as well. Some kind of artistic like exposure. Music is so huge with grief. It's just huge with grief, at least for me. For other people, going to the art museum is, is their thing, you know? And there are a lot of folks, there, there's a thing called collage that a lot of people are doing right now. And so just finding your way of expression. We haven't talked a lot today about the anger stage of grief, but it's so real and so important. And that one, you do need physical movement for, whether it's a punching bag or going to the gym or going for a really hard bike ride or whatever it might be with the intention of letting yourself feel that anger. Anger is really important as a part of grief. And I think because there are so many layers to our grief right now with COVID and with everything else that's been happening in the world and in the country, that part feels really important is giving yourself space to feel all of it. And you, that you can trust it, that you can trust it. There's space for what you're feeling and that you can trust what you're feeling. And then, know that co-regulation is important so make sure you're talking to a friend and thank you kevin for for being um such an advocate for therapy because i do think it's in our culture where we don't have ritualized and often even ceremony around loss therapy is one of the few places where it really is just okay to come and share what you're feeling i feel like that was the most beneficial for me too right after eb's death like we all were able to be together and just talk and like share stories. And yeah, without that, huge. that would have been 
I would have been way more. I don't know. It was like very important yeah, for me. Those two days afterwards yeah. were uh, were rough. Just needed people to be around. Like even if it wasn't, we all real. like we all like went on a hike and then yeah. we all just talked and it yeah. was like it wasn't overwhelmingly sad, which that's another thing that I feel like people feel like like yeah, it was sad for sure, but it wasn't overwhelmingly sad and it was like able to reminisce and talk and enjoy and um, I feel like learn things you didn't know and and remember things you may have forgotten and um it was very helpful yeah yeah that's one of the best things you can do for someone if you if you know that somebody's lost someone and that's why you're doing this episode obviously but um (laughs) is is just ask them stories about the person who died you know it's it's almost always helpful um and and some of those stories might be hard stories i mean eb was just this like (laughs) blinding light of a human being you know um but sometimes the person that someone lost uh, there was a complicated relationship and allowing there to be space there and not saying anything to talk them out of their grief like just i'm so sorry or boy i i hear you you know nothing nothing like try to see the bright side or none of that (laughs) no toxic positivity people no toxic positivity no minimizing (laughs) like just that sucks like that's probably the best overall grief reaction man that just sucks (laughs) i feel like i still don't know if people like ask me like how i'm doing and i'm like I'm good. Not good. Good. I think I'm good. Yeah. I mean, grief's a river, you know, flash flood warning sometimes. But for sure. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Which doesn't mean you're doing it wrong, you know, it means right. you're doing it right. I don't even like that as a culture we say, well, boy, they're really they're really having a hard time when they're just that just means they're openly grieving versus oh they're doing great, <laughs> they're strong. It's like, oh my gosh, we really need to flip that language around because it's it's the opposite. We just get so uncomfortable right. when people start crying. Or I like, know. I, I mean, know. I, I remember being like in nursing school and like the patient was like all of a sudden crying and I was like, uh, like do I pat their back? Like I think I did slowly, <laughs> but I just felt like I don't know how to handle this situation. Right. But yeah, you know, we learn, we get better. <laughs> we do. It is a grief illiterate culture. There's no question about it. So we, we, uh, we <laughs> yeah, we just yeah. like feel uncomfortable. <laughs> None of us know. None of us know what to do. Which, which is another reason I think why it's complicated as a nurse to show emotions in a patient room because yeah. you don't want to make the family uncomfortable, but like you're uncomfortable because yeah. they're crying and you don't know. Like, I think that all goes yep. into like being grief illiterate makes us be like awkward. Yes, Absolutely. But in life, I did some research. There have been lots of research in the last few decades, especially with the war on drugs ending. I mean, even a Netflix documentary that I watched not too long ago, Fantastic Fungi. Or fungi. Yeah. 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 So it, cool, it's, right? Um, some eye-opening studies out there. But um, all the way from UCLA, John Hopkins. But it pretty much shows the... A substantial decrease when it comes to depression and anxiety, even addiction, when um, psilocybin magic mushrooms are introduced into therapy sessions. Um, I don't know if you've had any kind of uh, experience or research or any inputs, knowledge (laughs) that could add to this. Yeah, you know, Oregon, which is close to where I am, just passed a law. Um, allowing for some research to start happening with therapy. So what's fascinating to me is the end of life research around psilocybin, where 70%, it was a single, it wasn't microdosing, it was a single dose with therapists, a therapist in the room. 70% of people who took it at the end of their life said they had one of the top three mystical experiences of their life and that they no longer feared their death. Mm -hmm. 
And so it is, um, I mean, there's just all this plant medicine out there that um, because of the war on drugs was outlawed and, and the research was, and it's not just psilocybin, it's MDMA and mm -hmm. ayahuasca. Um, ayahuasca and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fascinating. It's an exciting time to be a therapist. Um, one of the things that, that um, I'm in a group consultation where we're talking about the use of psilocybin all the time. And uh, one of our prescribers in the group says, please just, if you are going to use it, um, let your prescriber know because <laughs> there are <laughs> drug interactions yeah. with, um, with some other it's not that you can't take it mm -hmm. with another medication uh, another mental health med but if you can let your prescriber know so that they can help you avoid those interactions but I think we're going to see an, a, a real upheaval um, in a good way mm -hmm. uh, of the way that we're treating the kinds of things that we're using to treat all kinds of mental illness and I'm super excited about it Cindy, up in uh, Canada, they've been using Abigail for a while, right? For addiction? I believe, yes. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, in the United States, I think we have, uh, it's called MAPS, I think. And they've been studying, I think they're in, I think they're actually out of clinical trial now. They've published okay. for um, MDMA. Mm -hmm. uh, there's studies, I think, ongoing now with DMT. There's like, I'm, yeah. It's the new world because uh, it was that documentary, right? Where they had all the guys sitting around the site guys and they were like, you was great yeah. until the 70s. And then they just <laughs> outlawed everything. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was abused yeah. at some point, you know, it's, uh, yeah. there's no reason to be afraid of it, but it was definitely abused. Uh, I think earlier in the, in the 70s or 60s. And, and there are, you know, if you talk to people who are really experts about it, they will talk about, th there are some folks in the population who, for whom it might be dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, people right. who struggle with active psychosis um that, that's one group and and one of my concerns has been i mean these kinds of plant medicines have been a part of native american uh, ceremony and ritual for a long time you know for thousands of years but there was ritual before during and after and so we're going to have to figure out how to do this well and and really we need our indigenous teachers uh to show us how yeah mm -hmm. one thing i was what was uh, missing back then lots of stuff is happening um, that's going to revolutionize the way we treat. And I've had a number of clients really experience help with both of those, um, mm -hmm. as well as psilocybin. So it's an exciting time that way. I'm hopeful. Mm -hmm. I love that you did that research. That's awesome. I did not think that's the way it was going to go. <laughs> We're like, we've done some research. I'm into it. I'm, I'm here for it. I hope there is movement from this. And I really, really hope you all go check out that Netflix documentary. Um, fantastic. For fun sure. guy, fungi. They say it weird on the show. It's amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Yeah, it's very cool. Well, thank you all again for coming through and um, talking to us on this very, very difficult topic. Yeah, um, we really appreciate all your insights. Yeah, I mean, a lot of us definitely needed this. So once again, just a quick plug on who you are and where we can find you all. I'm Kevin, chillin' villain 70 on Instagram. Awesome. Cindy, uh, cindybroshcounseling.com. And thanks so much for having me. And thanks, you guys, for everything that you're doing. And very, very sorry for the loss of Evie. Such a great soul. Amen. Yeah. Rest in peace. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, we sure appreciate it. That was great. Yeah, that was a very, very great, informative episode. We can't thank Cindy and Kevin enough for coming on here and sharing their experiences and knowledge with us. 
very, very insightful um, takes you guys had to each stories, and I hope our listeners took something very valuable away during these times. Nurses are definitely the one that are feeling the most grief in the world. Um, the last 18 months has been something that we've never experienced as a society. Yeah. So I hope you guys got something out of this. But at the same time, I think this one was really important. Nursing is a profession that we are known to experience grief in. It, like, it just kind of comes with the job. And so having tools that you can use, whether it's talking to people, friends, coworkers, therapists, to help deal with that. And then on top of like the trauma and PTSD that came with COVID, being able to recognize those signs and seeking help quickly so that way you can do the proper steps to help. Yeah, the first step is definitely going to be that hard one but um hopefully you have that support around you that can help you or help nudge you in the right direction um and seeking that help for yourself i think some of the stories in here definitely highlighted how people tend to ignore those feelings that they have and try to push through the pain and continue to live their lives like nothing ever happened um i know it's hard to take time off um when bills are due and you have kids you gotta feed and things of that nature but hopefully you can find some way to cope and to water yourself take time for yourself know what you need and talk to a therapist yeah and also don't forget about the merch that we have um nursepeak.com yeah brought back the classic merch and we have some new ideas coming up so stay tuned Really excited about some of them. They're going to be kind of funny. Yeah, we're, we're trying our hardest to flex these creative muscles. So, um, so look out for Black Friday. Christmas and then if you the guys want to have updates, nursebeak.com, click the stay connected, fill it out. We send out sporadic emails every week. Just one <laughs> randomly. You never know if it's coming on a Monday or a Thursday. We got the pup dates on there. And it has Oscar pup dates. It has um, just general Nurse Life Foreign updates because... We can't always trust Instagram to be up and running. And that is why we created the Nurse Speak Forum. It should be out anytime soon. And it should be a place for you guys to connect with other people, talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. It's full of a lot of things. It was Evie's um, goal to have a platform that people could discuss staying anonymous and not rely on one person sending out the message. It's open for you guys to talk place for you guys to connect and then um remain anonymous and keep the nurse life RN community going and stronger than ever before yeah i think actually probably got this idea when they started blocking his page on instagram it's like i should make my own (laughs) we need to figure out how to move this community because we don't want it to disappear it's meaningful to a lot of people and it's Mm -hmm. extremely um useful yeah all right so one thing we've been thinking about doing at the end of these episodes is to put in something a little bit special at the end um, we have hours and hours and hours of audio of uh, my brother. Our last recording yeah, sessions where we just few. goofed off. Yeah, and they're hilarious. They are funny in the darkest way sometimes, but um, we will... That's what he did best. Yeah, he was the master of that dark humor. So we are going to be taking little snippets and throwing them in, so do not mistake my voice for his um, or vice versa. So We talked about grief and it's going to come. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. You just got to work through it. <laughs> and it's never a straight line. Yep. Thank you. Thanks. You know, honestly, my dream job would be like to go back to school for like therapy and counseling. 
and then open up a clinic where like you have you need therapy and counseling before you can give therapy. yeah yeah I'm like this i've actually never like i've never gone through this myself but <laughs> this is what you need no i really think that would you benefit from it yeah yeah but you i know, probably would too i obviously value therapy and counseling because i want to you're technically doing it in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, you very much are. You are. Yeah, just without the responsibility. 